Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife's Oral Board Review Series. My name is uh, Patrick Georgioff, and I am here with a good friend and co-fellow, Teddy Puzio. Teddy, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Teddy Puzio. I'm one of um, Patrick's co-fellows at UT Memorial Hermann. Uh, I did residency in North Carolina at UNC, and then I did a year of uh, surgical critical care last year at IU in Indiana. Great. Happy to have you on, Teddy. Today, we're going to talk about endocrine. Uh, disorder. So for the SCORE curriculum, the core diseases and conditions for endocrine are an adrenal mass, an incidental adrenal mass, primary hyperaldosteronism, hypercortisolism, hyperthyroidism, hyperparathyroidism, hypo or postoperative hypothyroidism, pheochromocytoma, thyroid cancer, thyroid nodule, and thyroiditis. Advanced diseases and conditions include adrenal cancer, multiple endocrine neoplasias, and parathyroid cancer. The core operations and procedures are limited to parathyroidectomy and total or partial thyroidectomy, whereas advanced procedures are adrenalectomy and ultrasound uh, of the thyroid. So, Teddy, what do you say we get started with hypercortisolism? Okay, sounds good. So, hypercortisolism... Uh, it's most commonly due to an exogenous source. Uh, what you'll see as far as signs and symptoms is truncal obesity, muscle wasting. You'll see central weakness. Uh, as far as labs, you'll see hypokalemia. These patients will also have uh, the Cushing habitus with glucose intolerance and osteoporosis. Now, Cushing syndrome is different. This is endogenous um, hypercortisolism. There's a couple different types. Patrick, do you want to tell us about those? Yeah. So. Uh, two main types of Cushing syndrome, uh, and uh, that includes uh, ACTH-dependent uh, disease, which is the majority, and these are uh, due to ACTH-producing pituitary adenomas most commonly. And if you have an ACTH-producing pituitary adenoma, that is called Cushing's disease. Again, the syndrome is the collection of signs and symptoms that Teddy just told us about, whereas Cushing's disease is specifically uh, due to an ACTH-producing pituitary adenoma. The rest of ACTH-dependent uh, uh, Cushing syndromes are due to small, uh, or excuse me, non-small cell lung cancers or uh, uh, bronchial carcinoids. And all ACTH-dependent Cushing syndromes result in bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. Again, ACTH-dependent bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. Uh, the other 20% of... Um, Cushing syndrome falls into the ACTH independent category, and these are due to solitary uh, adrenal adenomas predominantly. So in regards to working up uh, a patient who presents with hypercortisolism, 
uh, you want to start with a, uh, a 24 hour urine cortisol. And if, uh, this is high, you can confirm that the, that is in fact, uh, correctly elevated by ordering a low dose dexamethasone suppression test. And that includes giving one milligram of oral dexamethasone at 11 PM and then getting a cort, a serum cortisol level the next morning at 8 AM. This is an addendum to correct. Uh, errors in the original recording of this episode in which I mixed up the interpretation of high-dose dexamethasone suppression test. So to work up hypercortisolism, you start with this 24-hour urine cortisol. Okay, if that's high, typically greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter, you know you have some type of Cushing's problem, whether that's syndrome, disease, or an ectopic source. So the next step is to check ACTH. If ACTH is low, then you have Cushing's syndrome, in which case you want to get cross-sectional imaging to evaluate the adrenals. If ACTH is high, then you have Cushing's disease or an ectopic source of cortisol production, in which case you'd want to follow that high ACTH level with a high-dose dexamethasone suppression test. If, in fact, cortisol is suppressed with a high-dose dexamethasone suppression test, then you have Cushing's disease, in which case you want to confirm with an MRI um, of the head to look at the pituitary gland. If the uh, cortisol is not suppressed after high-dose dexamethasone, then you want to get a cross-sectional imaging of the chest to rule out ectopic ACTH production. So pretty confusing. Again, uh, high cortisol greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter in your 24-hour urine test, you know you have a problem. So then you check ACTH. If it's low, that's Cushing syndrome. You get your cross-sectional imaging of the adrenals. If ACTH is high, you got to differentiate between um, Cushing's disease uh, versus an ectopic source, and you do so with a high-dose dexamethasone suppression test. If cortisol is suppressed with a high-dose dexamethasone suppression test, you know you're dealing with a Cushing disease phenomenon. If it's not suppressed, you're dealing with an ectopic source of ACTH production. I hope that helps to clarify things. Uh, Teddy, how do you treat uh, uh, these patients? Yeah, so the patient that we're going to focus on is the one with <laughs> adrenal adenoma. Um, and that one for us is a surgical excision. So that can be done either laparoscopically or open or even uh, retro and from the retroperitoneum. And these patients is important to consider if you have a unilateral adenoma that once you remove that gland, you should uh, give them steroids because the other gland is going to be suppressed. <laughs> so, Patrick, why don't we move into hyperaldosteronism, another kind of high hitting topic on the boards as far as endocrine. So in these patients, uh, what you'll see is they have refractory hypertension at a young age. It's one of those secondary causes of hypertension. Uh, they'll have hypokalemia and they'll have an alkalosis. Um, there's also primary and secondary causes. Why don't you go ahead and go through uh, those? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so, so a primary cause is, is usually due to an adrenal tumor. And you'll see suppressed renin in this, these circumstances. And there's three big categories uh, of them. The main is, is an aldosterone producing adrenal adenoma. This is con syndrome. This is the most common. Another cause of a primary hyperaldosteronism from an adrenal tumor could be uh, due to bilateral adrenal, excuse me, adrenal hyperplasia or in rare cases, adrenal cortical carcinoma uh, that is active. You can also have secondary uh, types of hyperaldosteronism. In this case, your renin would be elevated. This is due to medical issues like renal artery stenosis, uh, cirrhosis, or even heart failure. Uh, so, Teddy, how do you diagnose or how do you go about diagnosing a patient who you have concerns for hyperaldosteronism? 
So you should go ahead and draw a uh, plasma aldosterone level and a plasma renin level. So you're going to see your plasma aldosterone level is greater than 15 nanograms per deciliter. The number itself may not be that relevant. Just know that it's elevated. And then you look at that ratio, the aldosterone to renin ratio, and if it's greater than 20, then it's um, supportive. It's also important just to kind of throw out there, just that if you're thinking about it, that you should hold ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and sometimes like spironolactone in these patients uh, that may affect the testing. <laughs> when we talk about workup, uh, how we work these patients up, so all these patients should get adrenal protocol CT, but you don't want to stop there because it's not 100% sensitive. So this is important to remember, kind of put this away in your brain, especially for the boards. So if you're considering these patients to have a, a hyperaldosteronism and you think they have an adrenal tumor, you should do adrenal vein sampling for all these cases. It's because you can, you can have a patient with a non-functioning adrenal adenoma on imaging, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's where their aldosterone is coming from. So you should sample um, uh, their adrenal veins to kind of figure out where their source is. Yeah, that's, um, that's probably a huge point, right? Teddy, you're on the boards yeah. and, and you're, you know, it's pretty clear that it's a young person, hypertension, uh, they have suppressed renin, but high aldosteronism. You get your CT scan. They give you uh, an adrenal mass, a unilateral adrenal mass. You say, cool, we're going to the OR. We're going to take this out. But you actually haven't completed your work it up at that point. Again, you need to get that adrenal vein sampling uh, because, again, you can you could potentially have disease or the actual uh, hyperaldosteronism from the contralateral gland. And you'll have done that paper uh, no favors if you take out the wrong adrenal gland. And so that's, I can imagine yeah. that being a good, a good case for the boards. Yeah, it would be a it would be a bad feeling when they come back to your clinic with hypertension that's still there. Sure, sure. And then you can treat these patients medically. Uh, certainly, if you have a bilateral adrenal hypoplasia, start with things like spironolactone or plerinone. Um, but if they have a uh, adenoma, you've lateralized it. That's a, it's going to be a surgical uh, a resection. So let's can move on to pheochromocytoma. Uh, also, pretty pretty. Uh, standard signs and symptoms, including episodic headaches, sweating, tachycardia. Diagnose these patients by getting uh, either, either plasma uh, or urine uh, metanephrine uh, uh, or 24-hour urine catecholamines. It's probably the best test is a 24-hour urine catecholamine. Uh, if these are elevated, you move on to get an adrenal protocol CT scan. Now, it's important to note that 15% of pheochromocytomas are actually extra-adrenal. So if you don't see it on a CT scan, don't stop there. Go on ahead and get an uh, MIBG scan that may help you localize an extra adrenal pheochromocytoma. Uh, if the examiner is telling you, uh, do you, asking you, do you want to biopsy this mass? Or maybe they're egging you on to biopsy this mass. Don't do it. Biopsying a pheochromocytoma can result uh, in a hypertensive crisis. So uh, if you have that biochemical diagnosis, you have the right clinical picture, no need to biopsy. And don't forget to, to remember that pheochromocytomas are associated with MEN2A and MEN2B. Uh, so, uh, Teddy, if we do have a pheo on, um, if we determine the patient has a pheo, we want to move have a surgical treatment, how do you go about managing that? Yeah, so this, again, another high-yield topic. I think probably the most important thing for these patients is not necessarily the technical, how do you take out an adrenal tumor, is more of, how do you manage these patients pre-intra and post-operatively? And that's kind of what it's important to focus on because, you know, these patients can, can die if they're managed improperly, not from surgery itself. So when you're um, 
Preoperatively, you want to manage their hypertension with an alpha blocker, preferably phenoxybenzamine. Um, and you want to make sure that they're volume up. So they should be um, <laughs> hydrated pre-surgery. And then later, once they're already alpha blocked, you can add in a beta blocker, which will prevent the reflex tachycardia. This is usually kind of right before surgery. Though interop, there should be a lot of communication between um, the surgical team and the anesthesia team because the patient can have very um, dramatic swings in hyper and hypotension. You, as the surgeon, want to kind of have minimal handling of the handling of the tumor. And as soon as you can ligate that adrenal vein, you should ligate it early. Um, and again, crystalloids in this case are your friend. All these patients go to the um, ICU post-op. And they should all have some kind of central access to help with pressors as needed. And Teddy, um, for these, these patients, this is probably one of the rare times that you want to make sure the anesthesiology team has a whole bunch of antihypertensives, rapidly acting uh, antihypertensives available in addition to vasopressors as you might have these big swings one way or the other in the, in the, in the case, correct? Yeah, that's a good point. Very much so. Um, how about in, in our world, we see it a lot, the incidentaloma. What do we do with yeah, that? Yeah, the random on the trauma scan. Yeah, pan scan. So incidentaloma, uh, we're talking about adrenal tumors here or adrenal masses, I should say. This can happen in up to 2% of healthy patients. And the big question you have to ask yourself is, or two big questions are, is it functional and is it malignant? And so you can answer those questions by first performing a careful history and physical exam, looking for signs or symptoms uh, that might uh, relate to an adrenal mass. And then you want to perform your functional workup. And so this is a slew of tests that will hit all the core uh, hormones related to the adrenal glands. So you're going to order uh, some urine metanephrines. You can do plasma as well. Uh, a 24-hour urine cortisol, plasma, aldosterone, renin, and a BMP to look at the potassium, in addition to DHEA and testosterone level. So again, your metanephrines, cortisol, aldosterone, renin, BMP, DHEA, and testosterone. So that's your functional workup. The second question was, is it malignant? So how do you determine it's malignant? Well, typically that relies on CT scanning and, and imaging characteristics are important. So, Teddy, what are the imaging characteristics on CT scan that would suggest an adrenal incidentaloma is uh, malignant? So, these will be irregular in shape. Um, they're heterogeneous. They have a high attenuation. So, usually the, the, that means Hounsfield units greater than 10. And then if you look at the washout, they have a slow contrast washout greater than four centimeters. So these, again, going back to what we said earlier, it's important to know these CT scan findings because the, the wrong answer is to biopsy this mass. If you think it's a pheo, again, repeating it, if you think it's a pheo, do not biopsy it. That's probably a fail on your boards. You should diagnose it with the metanephrons and look at the CT scan. Um, it's probably can, similar for, for, for ACC, for adrenal cortical carcinoma, right? If it has malignant characteristics, you're just going to take it out. You're not going to biopsy. Is that correct? Yep, exactly. All right. So speaking of adrenal cortical carcinoma, then uh, specifically, we're going to do the same workup we talked about uh, for the other masses. We're going to take a, a detailed history and physical, and we want to determine if it's functional because actually 60% of adrenal cortical carcinomas are functional. Um, and uh, oftentimes, adrenal cortical carcinomas will be large. The, the number is either four or six centimeters, but certainly greater than six centimeters. If you hear that on your boards, 
that is telling you essentially this is a, a, a malignant mass or it's highly concerning for a malignant mass. Um, and it's, it's, it's terrible, but most of these patients present with metastatic disease. That's important to know as well. If you have any concerns for meds, PET CT scan is, is the imaging of choice. Uh, again, we're not going to biopsy these, these tumors and we're going to perform open surgery. Uh, so if you're finding yourself in a, in a laparoscopic case and you say, Oh man, there's malignant features or something. The examiner is telling you this is actually giving you suggestion that it's malignant. You want to convert to open. Uh, so if it's a large mass or concern for malignancy, do an open surgery. And adjuvant radiation is part of the treatment, uh, can be part of the treatment in chemotherapy as well. Uh, the unique thing about the chemotherapy for ACC is that uh, this can include mitotane. So, Teddy, how do we approach these surgically? There's a couple different options. So, as you said, you know, the preferred approach in an adrenal carcinoma Adrenal cortical carcinoma would be open, um, but for the others, as, such as a FIO, you can do it lap um, and also retroperitoneal. Um, if you're going to do it laparoscopically, this is a good one to kind of commit to memory. Again, when you're on the boards, brief to the point, you don't have tons of time. So uh, laparoscopically, lateral decubitus, subcostal ports. If you're going after the left adrenal, you're going to mobilize the spleen medially open gerotus fascia, you're going to use a harmonic scalpel. Remember the left adrenal vein empties into the left renal vein, and you're going to carefully kind of dissect out the gland. If you're going after the right, you got to retract the liver. The free uh, inferior edge of the liver is dissected from the retroperitoneum. You want to be careful of the IVC. And if you're doing this and you find that it's stuck, you should also start thinking about um, that it could be an adrenal carcinoma. You find the adrenal vein on the right emptying into the IVC directly and you ligate it and then carefully dissecting out the gland. If you're going to describe it in open fashion, basically the same thing. Make sure you use a subcostal incision. All right. Awesome. So let's uh, let's move on to thyroid stuff. Okay. Uh, so the, the thyroid or neck mass, a very common uh, scenario. Uh, it's covered in great detail. Uh, and so... Do you have something that presents to your, your clinic with a thyroid mass? We want to first do a careful history. We want to find out if the patient's symptomatic. We want to talk about their history, uh, maybe exposure to radiation, if they have any personal or family history of thyroid issues or uh, thyroid uh, cancers. If the examiner uh, gives you a lot of a myriad history of cancers, you might want to think about the MEN syndromes, including issues with the parathyroid, pancreas, pituitary, or thyroid tissue. And we'll uh, come back to that at the end of this this uh, this section and talk about MEN uh, syndromes and review them uh, uh, for the purpose of the exam. Uh, you Patrick, wanna, I would add to that. Yeah, yeah, I would add to that if they if you're getting this weird um, endocrine type of question and their family history is that they're adopted, you should also think about the MEN syndromes and try to delineate that because that can be a, a common way that they pose it. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so on physical exam, you want to the, uh, the thyroid itself, uh, you want to have the patient swallow. Uh, thyroid mashes should move up and down with swallowing. Uh, this would be uh, compared and contrasted through a thyroglossal cyst, which would move up and down if you stick your tongue out. Uh, we also want to do a careful exam of the lymph nodes as well. Uh, so, Teddy, how do we work these patients up? Uh, someone comes in with a thyroid nodule. What's the standard workup? So the first step would be an intra, uh, intra-office ultrasound. And you want to use a high-frequency linear probe. 
Um, and the things that you're going to look for, so the, the things that make you concerned that it would be malignant would be hypoechoic. Uh, if there were irregular margins, if you saw vascularity or microcalcifications. And remember the mantra, taller than wide, is also um, uh, concerning. Don't forget to look at the lymph nodes when you're doing that as well. If you see any funny-looking nodes that you're concerned about, you should just go ahead and do an FNA right there, and that will help guide your therapy. Um, beyond the ultrasound, there's some lab testing, so you should always get a TSH. Uh, Patrick, where are you going to go with that? Yeah, yeah. So the T- let's say the TSH comes back low. I would order a thyroid scintigraphy. Um, if I see a hot nodule, uh, I would treat that patient medically for hyperthyroidism with either PTU or methimazole. Uh, if that maybe showed diffuse uptake, that may be more suggestive of something like Graves. Now, if my TSH is normal or high, I'm going to move forward with an FNA. Um, now, how do you perform an FNA? It's you use a 25 gauge or something, a similar gauge needle, place it on a 10 cc syringe, and you're going to uh, take multiple passes. Uh, through that thyroid nodule, either uh, if it's palpable, you can just palpate it and, and, and go through or under ultrasound guidance, you want to apply intermittent suction to the syringe, uh, a light intermittent light suction, and we're going to save those cells in preservative uh, for a later analysis. Now, the the results of the uh, thyroid FNA are graded by the Bethesda criteria. And the Bethesda criteria uh, is a scoring system. It goes one through six. And so let's review that really quick. Uh, so Bethesda, uh, a score of one would be benign disease. Okay. That patient should get a follow up ultrasound in, in about six months. Bethesda two is non diagnostic. You'd want to repeat the FNA. Bethesda three uh, shows atypia or follicular lesions of undetermined significance. So AUS or FLUS or FLUS. In that case, you'd also repeat the FNA. Bethesda four shows a follicular neoplasm in which case we would talk about surgical management. Bethesda 5 is suspicious for for malignancy. That patient also goes to surgery. And Bethesda 6 is malignant. That patient also goes to surgery. So in general, there are four types of thyroid cancer. The first being papillary. This is the most common. Uh, The prognosis of which is based on local invasion. There's follicular cancer as well. Uh, Interestingly, follicular cancer cannot be diagnosed on FNA. Uh, you can only diagnose it with surgical pathology that shows a capsular or vascular invasion. And there is one subtype of follicular cancer and might be worth mentioning, which is cell subtype. This is a more aggressive version of follicular uh, cancer and probably the most notable when it comes to treatment, it does not take up radioiodine. Now, medullary thyroid cancer, this is a little more confusing. Uh, and medullary thyroid cancer, this is very aggressive. It's associated with men uh, one, or excuse me, 2A and B. And if this comes up on the exam, you're going to want to pause for a moment and screen the patient for other MEN syndrome. How would you do that? Well, we'd want to screen for hyperthyroid, hyperparathyroidism with calcium and PTH levels. We'd want to check for a pheochromocytoma, pheochromocytoma by talking to the patient about their history, but also checking urine metanephrines. And uh, it's also, uh, we would get some different labs too. So you could check a calcitonin level, which should be elevated. Uh, as medullary thyroid cancers come from the parafollicular C cells, which secrete calcitonin. And up to 50% of medullary thyroid cancers also secrete CEA. So CEA is not just for colon cancer. It can be used in medullary cancer to follow that as well. And then last is anaplastic. Thyroid cancer is super, super aggressive. 
near universally fatal. If we have medullary or anaplastic cancer, you probably want to think about screening the patients with uh, CT scans of the head, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Uh, so, Teddy, when it comes to surgical management of thyroid nodules, uh, how would you kind of break that up? So, um, you want to break it up into whether it's papillary or follicular versus medullary and, or anaplastic. So, the papillary and follicular neoplasms, um, you're going to do a lobectomy if it's less than one centimeter. If it's greater than one centimeter, then you're going to do a thyroidectomy. Um, in the in medullary thyroid cancer, the treatment is going to be a total thyroidectomy. Uh, what about medical uh, medical treatment options? Yeah, so uh, levothyroxin synthroid is is uh, a thyroid hormone replacement medicine we're all uh, familiar with, but it's also used to suppress the growth of any residual tumor following a cancer resection uh, surgery. And the dose for levothyroxin, a common dose at least, is 1.6 micrograms per kilogram per day. So again, 1.6 micrograms per kilogram per day. Cytomel is also a hormone replacement therapy of choice. This has a shorter half-life than Synthroid. And you might want to use this if uh, you know the patient's going to go radioactive iodine uh, treatment after surgery. Uh, so with that said, uh, Teddy, how do we determine who gets radioactive iodine? Yeah, that's a good question. So that it's determined by the American Thyroid Association uh, risk stratification. There's a low, intermediate, and high. Basically, it's given to any patients with uh, metastatic disease, extra thyroidal extension, or if they have a very aggressive histology. And in these patients, um, after a thyroid, a thyroidectomy, you can follow thyroglobulin levels. And if you see that it's rising, you would be worried about uh, recurrence. And then you could also, at that point, consider radioactive iodine treatment. Um, Patrick, how about going through a thyroidectomy, which is something... Right, so thyroidectomy is one of the core procedures, right, for for the SCORE curriculum. Uh, and it's certainly game for, for the oral board. So I would patient, uh, excuse me, uh, position the patient supine uh, with her neck extended, uh, use a nerve stimulator uh, or a... Uh, really an endotracheal tube with nerve stimulator capabilities, perform a collar incision, uh, extend that through the platysma, I'd then perform sub-platysmal flaps. I'd identify my midline, dissect through the midline and separate the strap muscles. This would expose the thyroid gland. Now you can start your thyroid dissection on all different types of ways, but I'll just say I'd, I would start my dissection at the upper pole, taking the thyroid vessels as close to the thyroid gland as possible in order to preserve the parathyroid blood supply and avoid injury to the recurrent original nerve. I'd mobilize the gland medially and identify the nerve itself uh, and protect that throughout. Uh, I would then dissect the gland or excuse me, move on to the inferior aspect of the gland, take my vessels down there, dissect the gland from the trachea, reimplant any devascularized parathyroid glands. And there's a number of uh, complications that can arise that be commonly tested on the boards, probably including a nerve injury which you could diagnose with laryngoscopy. The patient would present with hoarse voice. Um, most of this resolves as it's just paresthesias. And uh, it could be palliated if it's a, a severe or permanent injury with an ipsilateral cord medialization. And if they have bilateral injury, uh, that would certainly result in an airway emergency. And so if you've had any patient with a prior neck surgery, whether it was a thyroid surgery beforehand or anything else, you'd want to get a, a DL or direct laryngoscopy in the clinic before you perform your operation to ensure they don't have an occult, uh, a contralateral, a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. Teddy, if you have a patient 
who is developing a post-op or hematoma in in the PACU immediately after surgery. What do you do for that patient? Yeah, this is the classic question. You open the neck. The wrong thing to do is to try to reintubate the patient because they'll end up losing their airway. Right. Right. And then hypocalcemia is probably a pretty common thing. You support them through the immediate post-operative period with a calcium and vitamin D. Now, this is painful, but I'm just going to read through the MEN syndromes uh, just to touch on those at some point during this this series. So, MEN1 includes parathyroid hyperplasia. Uh, This is 90% of patients. Uh, A pituitary issue in 66% of patients, most commonly prolactinoma, and a pancreatic mass in uh, between 20 and 50% of patients, most commonly gastronoma, and then second up would be insulinoma. So, MEN1, parathyroid hyperplasia typically prolactinoma, and then most commonly, gastronoma. That's the three Ps. The three Ps, that's right. Absolutely. For MEN2A, uh, 100% of these patients develop medullary thyroid cancer. So important for uh, medullary thyroid cancer comes up. You want to think about these other associated uh, um, uh, uh, issues. Um, Parathyroid hyperplasia occurs in 50% and pheochromocytoma in about a third. So medullary thyroid cancer, 100%, parathyroid hyperplasia, 50%, and pheochromocytoma is 33%. Teddy, if if you uh, have a patient or young kid that you know has MEN2A, when do you provide per, per, or perform that prophylactic thyroidectomy? It's recommended at five years of age that they should get a prophylactic yeah. thyroidectomy. Exactly. And then last is MEN2B. Uh, these uh, Most patients present mucosal neuromas. Medullary thyroid cancer in 85% uh, percent of these patients, pheochromocytoma in half, and, and oftentimes as mar- morphinoid body habitus. Now, to make things even more confusing, Teddy, you told me that for MEN2A, if we know we have a young kid with MEN2A, we're going to take their thyroid out, do a total thyroidectomy at five years old. But if you know you have a child who has MEN2B, when do you take their thyroid out? Those are, uh, that, that recommendation is six months because it's at yeah. 85 percent risk so much higher right so men2a five years old men2b six months but th- all right Patrick, so just to hit for the boards yeah. Yeah. for the boards on this the one you know we've we've said it but to hit it home if you look at both men2a and b medullary thyroid cancer if you have a patient with that if you have to check metanephrons to rule out a pheo the wrong thing to do is to take them to the or and operate on their medullary thyroid cancer before working them up because you can trip them into um, a crisis and then you'll have to struggle down that route on the boards. Great. Awesome. All right, let's uh, go to our last topic, hyperparathyroidism. So uh, primary hyperparathyroidism, how do these patients present? Well, they have uh, they can present a lot of different ways, but uh, the classic presentation is stones, bones, abdominal groans, psychiatric moans. Uh, so any myriad of symptoms from that that collection, uh, and they have elevated PTH. So usually ten to sixty five is about normal. Uh, they'll have an elevated PTH in addition to an elevated calcium. So you have to have both elevated PTH and calcium. It does not matter what the vitamin D level is. If you have both PTH and calcium elevated, that is uh, a diagnostic for primary hyperparathyroidism. So. To work these patients up on, uh, on the boards, I'd probably just repeat another PTH and calcium, make sure they weren't spurious, uh, confirm that that, it, in fact, is true. You can grab a 24-hour urine calcium to rule out familial hypocalcuric hypercalcemia. 
And then I perform imaging to try to localize uh, a, a adenoma because 85 or more than 85, really uh, 85% of primary hyperparathyroidism is due to a single adenoma. And uh, so how do I localize? You could do perform an ultrasound, an in-office ultrasound that may show you a, a large gland. You can also do a SESTA-MEBI scan with single photon uh, emission a CT, so or aka SPECT. So if we do have a patient comes in, maybe they have a couple, uh, they have some symptoms, uh, they have an elevated PTH, they have a high calcium. Uh, we have performed our ultrasound and or SESTA-MEBI scan. How do we treat these patients, Teddy? So in the patients that have severe hypercalcemia, the ones who, you know, have the abdominal groans, psychiatric overtones, they're like altered. These are the patients that you want to volume resuscitate them. So we give them crystalloid. And then once they're volume up, you would give them Lasix to kind of flush out the calcium. In a patient who you see in clinic um, who has symptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism, the treatment for that is going to be surgery. What about what about patients who are asymptomatic? What, what about those? Yeah. yeah, so asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism. Some uh, folks would argue they should just have surgery if they're good candidates. But it's probably worth knowing uh, the indications per the fourth international workshop. This is a 2014 meeting uh, in which certain criteria were set forward to determine who, uh, if asymptomatic, should have a parathyroid surgery. And so if the patient is young, less than 50 years old, if their serum calcium is sufficiently high, greater than one milligram per deciliter above normal, something like 11.2-ish or more, they would need surgery. If they have a T-score that's less than 2.5 or have had a vertebral fracture uh, at any point in the past, they should be considered. And if they have any kidney issues, and specifically this includes a GFR less than 60, kidney stones, or a high 24-hour urine calcium, they should get surgery. So again, symptomatic, primary hyperparathyroidism, go to surgery, asymptomatic, if they're young, less than 50, they have high serum calcium, they have bad bones or bad kidneys, they should go to surgery. And uh, we should ideally, if you have imaging that shows a enlarged parathyroid gland, we'd perform a directed a parathyroidectomy based on that imaging. But we'd also do some other stuff in the OR. Teddy, what, what other kind of things do you follow to determine whether you got the right gland or had a successful yeah. surgery? So the- uh, this this is also pretty highly testable. So we're going to use intraoperative PTH. Um, it's important to know that the half-life is three to five minutes. Um, there's different criteria, but probably the most simplest and probably the safest, safest for the board is you want to see a greater than 50% drop from the baseline, which that means it's important if you're um, articulating how to do this operation that you check a baseline PTH. It's one of those things that if you remember it later, you can just say, hey, I, I, I would have checked a baseline. Um, and then you want to look at um, an intraoperative uh, PTH at about 10 minutes to see where you are. So what about in the circumstance where you can't find that gland? You have um, a gland that's missing. So um, the classic teaching is that you're going to look in a few different places. So you're going to look in the tracheoesophageal groove. Um, especially for the superior one. If you can't find the lower gland, sometimes uh, it could be in the thymus. For either of these, you can look in the carotid sheath. And then finally, you can um, use an intraop ultrasound of the thyroid itself and see if you can find a nodule um, because it can be in the thyroid gland itself. Um, Patrick, what about secondary causes? Yeah. 
So uh, just briefly, secondary hyperparathyroidism is, is due to renal failure. And these patients, uh, therefore, produce less vi- activated vitamin D. And so interestingly, they can have normal or low calcium levels, but they always have very high PTH levels. And this results in foregland hyperplasia. So different than primary in that there's often a, a single adenoma. And the treatment is typically medical. You give vitamin D, uh, can give calcium if it's low. Uh, these patients are on phosphate binders or calcimimetics like uh, Syncalcet, which sensitizes calcium receptors on the parathyroid gland, which results in, in decreased PTH release. And surgery is only indicated when you, they've failed, the patients have failed medical management. And uh, uh, failure may look, uh, it can result in a bunch of symptoms, including bone pain, uh, bad intractable uh, skin itching or pruritus, calciphylaxis or renal osteodystrophy. And the surgery itself for secondary hyperparathyroidism would be a subtotal or three and a half gland parathyroidectomy in which you would leave behind uh, just uh, enough tissue in one gland to constitute what you think a normal parathyroid gland should be. So again, a a 3.5 gland uh, resection. All right, Teddy, uh, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Um, I hope all the listeners get a lot out of this review. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Being here, good luck to everybody uh, taking the boards. Yeah. All right. Dominate the day. Good luck to everybody uh, taking the boards. Yeah. All right. Dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.